This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. As you might imagine, being a new parent requires a lot of organization. Now add an active career on top of that, and it's a whole new level. That's one of the things that cellist Elisa Weilerstein was telling me about as she and her husband, conductor Raphael Payer, welcomed a second daughter just recently. And we talked about the new recording of Beethoven cello sonatas, too, which she made with Enon Barnaton. And that's what you're going to find out more about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, first of all, Elisa, I want to congratulate you on the birth of your second daughter. Is it Alina? Alina, yes. Thank you. Alina. And she's what, like four months old now, I read? Exactly four months. Wow. That's exciting. It is. So what does her big sister think of this new excitement in the household? Well, so far, she just absolutely adores her. My older daughter, Ariadna, is, is six years old and very, very nurturing, very, um, very aware of everything. And um, yeah, doesn't miss a thing. So <laughs> it's a it's, that's a great it's, age difference. She probably wants to be very helpful. Yeah, <laughs> she is very helpful. She's extremely helpful. So. Now, are you based in San Diego? Is that where you live? Yes. Yes, it is. Wonderful. And I know that your husband is the music director of the San Diego Symphony. It's mm-hmm. Rafael Payer. Payare. Payare, thank you. So I'm I was just thinking, trying to imagine what life is like for the two of you, because it's challenging enough in a two-career household, but the two of you are touring musicians on top of that. What have you discovered about this new reality of yours <laughs> with two little ones? Well, <laughs> the new reality, of course, is having two kids, but our our reality between us is, has always been the same, you know, in, in terms of having two extremely active careers, very busy ones and with a lot of travel involved. And actually, in a way, it's now more stable because uh, in addition to being music director of San Diego Symphony, Raphael is starting his music directorship of the Montreal Symphony, or Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal. And so, you know, 80% of his work is, is between those two um, fantastic orchestras. And so in a way, he's more stable now in terms of less travel than he used to be. So, and, and I'm the one as, as a soloist. I mean, my, my schedule hasn't changed too much. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of going, going all around. But um, this aspect of, of things makes life a little bit a little bit more organized. Well, it sounds like it's a very exciting time at your house. I was reading how you sometimes play like solo Bach pieces and then there's interpretive dance maybe that's happening along too. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, my uh, Ariadna, of course, uh, Elena is too young for that at the moment, although she she tries to dance with her face a little bit, which is really cute. But, um, <laughs> but um, Ariadna is a big fan of interpretive dance, so there, there, there's plenty of that in our house. Wonderful. Well, not only did you expand your family during the global pandemic, you created a new recording with your longtime musical partner, pianist Enon Barnaton. And it's a collection of Beethoven cello sonatas. And it's interesting to me that the two of you have been playing these works literally the entire time you've been collaborating, which is back since like 2008. And right now was the time that you finally decided to record them. Why was now the right time to make this recording? 
Well, there are several things. I mean, we wanted to wait to record them for a while just because these are pieces that one really has to live with. I mean, in a sense, I mean, nothing is like the Bachcello suites in terms of, let's say, people's reverence for them and say fear of putting one sort of permanent stamp on them. But um, this comes close. And so the Beethoven sonatas are, were pieces that we, we didn't want to rush into recording. So that's that was the reason for the long wait. 2020, of course, was also supposed to be the big Beethoven year. And obviously that got a bit overshadowed by world events for obvious reasons. And um, we had been set to tour the complete Beethoven sonatas, all five, not the variations, but the, but, but the sonatas. We were going to do um, a tour of many, many concerts, all of which were canceled. I think we actually only got to do two, which were in the fall of 2019. And so it was October of 2020 and things were... I mean, they, they, they weren't completely shut down, but they were pretty shut down. And we just, we were in San Diego. We had this gorgeous hall at the, the Conrad Previs Center. Um, Adam Abe's house, who our fantastic producer, was available. And we just thought, I mean, I, I called Pentatone. I said, let's let's do this. Let, let, let's just, I mean, we, we had been talking about doing it eventually. It's like, well, okay, now's the perfect time. Let's just, let's just, let's just do it. So we did. Can you talk a little bit more about what that experience was like when you actually made the recording? How What was that experience like? I mean, obviously it was during the pandemic, but what else were you feeling as you were laying these pieces down as a recording at that time? I mean, these are some of the greatest masterpieces for cello and piano that I've ever been written. I mean, arguably, maybe they are the greatest masterpieces written down. So, I mean, you know, there there is that weight of course, but um, more than anything, it's just um, both Inon and I just love this repertoire so deeply. And so it, it's not just a kind of reverence and love for it, but it's also the joy of playing it and of putting it together and thinking about it and arguing about it and, and experimenting with it. And to do that when in October 2020, we, we, we know where we're you know, kind, kind of where we were mentally during that phase of the pandemic. I mean, of course, we're still in the pandemic. It's a different phase of it. Um, but at that time, there is just still so, so much um, uncertainty about how we would kind of come out and how we would interact with one another again when once we were allowed to kind of leave our homes. It was, I was saying to Inan at the time, I said, this is like therapy, just to make music and to, and to communicate these um, really profound ideas and emotions in, in a way that, you know, we, we didn't have to use our words for anything. We just could, we just could make music. And it, it was kind of a reminder of why we both do what we do and why we love what we do so much. I was watching a short YouTube video where you were firing off quick responses to questions. And when you were asked about your favorite musician at first, you said, no, no, can't, I just can't do that. And then you paused and you said, oh, Beethoven. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you remember that or not. And this, I don't think this was recent. I think this might have been even in the last two years. I think no. I think it was actually five years ago. Yeah, is Beethoven? Would you still say Beethoven is your favorite composer? I would go back to my original answer, which is I can't answer that, but he's definitely up there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm a little more measured now. <laughs> so, if he was your favorite composer, why would that be? I mean, what are the in addition to, of course, these great works that he wrote, what other things would you say make him at the top of your list? It's the most visceral music I can think of. Um, there's something, uh, I mean, it combines being intellectually on the 
highest level, structurally the most uh, interesting and beautifully crafted music with, uh, with having a kind of primal rhythmic drive and energy, which is present even in the most tender moments. And speaking of the tender moments, when Beethoven becomes vulnerable, to me, it is, uh, it's almost unbearable in terms of how moving, how touching it is, and how direct it is. There's a, there's a kind of nakedness in, in Beethoven, which I think is very unique. And so, so, th- so that's what I mean also by primal. I love that idea of Beethoven being vulnerable. Can you give me some examples of where we hear that? Well, I'll give you two examples, and actually from two extremely different periods. I mean, we're, we're talking about the cello and piano sonatas. The first is the end of the first movement of the first sonata. There's a moment, it's right before the um, very quick and joyous ending, but there's just like about 30 seconds of something that... It kills me every time I hear it, every time I play it, it's just... It's just that it's that moment of vulnerability. And this is extremely early. This is Opus 5, Opus 5 number one. This is still very much in the, let's say, the classical period of his own writing. And then I would point you to the middle section of the second movement of the fifth sonata, which is the last one. This is what this is arguably the gateway to late Beethoven, which is where he gets harmonically the most wild and rhythmically and structurally is much freer, and also just for me even even more primal. stuff is stripped away. It's just down to its essence. And that's another unbearably moving moment. A very long moment, actually. At least one of these sonatas has made its way into just about every recital program that you and Enon Barnington have performed. Why is that? Because we love it. <laughs> That's the very simple answer. Secondly, of course, uh, we're always trying to construct programs and, and pieces that are disparate, but that also flow very well within into one another. So, for example, uh, the Britain cello and piano sonata is one of our favorite pieces to program. It's also it's another masterpiece, and we almost always put a Beethoven sonata before the Britain comes. For me, something that both composers have in common, even though of course it's a completely different language and and obviously completely different era and time. So I mean the harmonic language is very different, but they have this primal rhythmic drive in common with each other. And so it's a kind of nice segue to see 
how Britain evolved with that. And so I, that's why it's one reason why we like putting Beethoven before Britain. If somebody was experiencing these sonatas for the first time, what would you suggest they listen for? I would just suggest they listen. I, I wouldn't put ideas into their minds, uh, except <laughs> I think sometimes, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, someone might think of Beethoven as very high church, if you know what I mean, in the same way that one might think of Bach in this way. And I would say to try to, uh, to forget this idea that for me, there's no composer that speaks directly to everybody more than Beethoven does. One of the coolest things about Beethoven's complete cycle of sonatas for cello and piano is that in five fairly concise works, we get to hear how Beethoven's relationship between the piano and cello was redefined. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that evolution and how we hear it in these works? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because historically, in terms of our canon, it was a very important trajectory that we're following You'll notice that if you hear the first two sonatas, or the first one in particular. That it's really more of a piano and cello sonata. In other words, the piano is really the main voice and the cello is having a kind of obligato voice. Um, especially in the first sonata, I mean, I'm just kind of floating around and, and uh, the piano is just wailing away, basically. It has extremely virtuosic writing, and this was quite typical of the very classical period. I mean, the Mozart violin piano sonatas are, are, are written that way. Most of them are, are like that. And in fact, Mozart even thought of writing piano sonatas with violin accompaniment. And so this was, this was the same as the modus operandi at, at that time. However, even in the second sonata, you can hear that shift a bit. The cello has far more to do and far more to say. And then in the third sonata, this is the first one where the cello and piano are truly equal partners. And it's announced from the very first note, which is played by the cello alone. And that was not done really prior to that by any major composer. And so that's, um, that historically it was a really big deal. And then of course this continues into the fourth of the sonatas which are groundbreaking in other ways. Um, I know we were talking about the cello and piano relationship, but if I can just continue that, the, the fourth sonata structurally is wild. Some have even called it the free sonata. There are two movements only. It's it's quite compact. I think it's the shortest of the five sonatas, even though there's so much information packed in there. And each of the movements starts with this slow introduction and then is followed by a really sort of extremely energetic movement. fascinating to see how he just broke all the rules. 
If you had all five of these sonatas on your music stand and you walk over and you're going to sit down and play one, which is the first one you would grab? Probably the fifth. (laughs) Um, Not that I would play favorites, but... The fifth is, as, as I told you before, that's the, that's really kind of the gateway to late Beethoven, harmonically speaking, in addition to structurally speaking. The fugue, uh, the last moment, it, it could have been written yesterday in terms of how harmonically adventurous it is. So I always, um, I'm always kind of pressured to that. You mentioned during the recording process that it gave you a chance to even kind of argue things out a little bit. When I say argue, I mean, we, you know, there are a couple of things we wanted to kind of discuss and just play through a couple of times. But honestly, we feel this music so similarly. And, um, you know, if there there was a question of tempo, it was just, it was very easy to work out. And, and in fact, we, we kind of have a similar uh, rehearsing style that, that we, it's, we're not too verbal. We just, if something isn't quite working, say, like, okay, can we just play it again? And usually that solves it. Just sensing each other. And one of us might say, well, this isn't working. And then the other might say, let me try this this way. I think I know what you mean. And then it just, it just kind of fixes itself. It's very rare to find a partner like that. So that's why we like playing together. <laughs> Well, and I know that um, kind of that equal partnership is really important to the two of you. And you choose music that will allow you both to be partners in the conversation, which is really cool. So in the 14 years that you and Enon Barnington have been collaborating, how has your relationship evolved? Is it something that you've noticed when you think back to where you started and where you are now as, a, as musical collaborators? I mean, it was just very natural. We became very good friends. I mean, you know, it's one of my best friends, I'd say, in life as as well as in music. And so that's a really, really wonderful friendship to have. And yeah, I mean, we, we've gone through virtually all of the cello and piano repertoire. We've traveled the world together and just, you know, just shared so much. And so it's evolved in a really nice way. This summer, you're going to be performing Elgar's Cello Concerto at Carnegie Hall Mm-hmm. And are you doing that with the National Youth Orchestra? Correct, yeah. And Daniel Harding, yeah. I've worked with Daniel Harding before with the Mallory Chamber Orchestra, and it was it was a great joy. I, I um, He's a fantastic conductor and musician. Of course, he's a very famous one. You, you, I'm sure you've heard him conduct many, many times, but uh, it's I'm really looking forward to working together again. And with the National Youth Orchestra of the USA, I've, we've never worked together, and so I'm I'm really thrilled to do that for the first time. But I also, I love working with young orchestras. And, um, well, I mean, the enthusiasm, of course, is always fantastic. It's also, it's great to kind of watch and listen as, as the musicians are internalizing the music that they might be playing for the first time that they might have heard other orchestras play, but they get to experience this as a collective for the first time and that they might be seeing these new places and these great festivals, of course, that we're going to go to for the first time. And so it's just wonderful to experience that with them and to you know, just to kind of share the joy, I think. 
It makes me wonder, and I'm guessing that you are a role model probably for a lot of these kids who will be in that orchestra when they see, you know, what you've achieved and you're, um, you're, well, I mean, you're fairly young. You have two little ones. You know what I mean? Like you can do it all, right? <laughs> um, at least you're demonstrating that that's possible because I, I think that sometimes, you know, we get that impression, especially you think, oh, I'm going to be a touring musician. I can't possibly have a personal life, right? I'm hardly ever home. But And that is not true. That is not true. Yeah. So you're. I, I just feel like maybe you're a really good role model for these kids. Do you ever think about it like that? I, I find that a bit presumptuous to think of myself as a role model, but... Uh, but well, I, I'm, I'm saying it then. Okay, let me re- <laughs> rephrase the question. I think you are a really good role model for young musicians, especially when it comes to thinking about how you can be the whole person. For sure. And I, you I know, think, you can have... I, I think that's a, that's a very fair point. And it's a conversation I've had with several peers of mine, as well as, let's say, the, the generation that's immediately younger than, than I am, that it is possible, that it takes organization, but it, <laughs> but it, is, it is more than possible. And it's, uh, and it's fantastic. That leads me, because, you know, I'm a mother. Obviously, that's why I'm asking you mom questions. But it also makes me think about, at least my experience in my career, is that it became much richer at the time when I had a family and I, because I felt like it helped me really to put things in perspective. Absolutely. So that I didn't take any one thing to one extreme. And I wonder if you've experienced something similar. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And um, it's interesting also as a, you know, my, uh, my older daughter is six now and has it really, it, I mean, and I'm sure you experienced this too. And of course, I mean, she, she's still little, obviously, but conversations with her are getting, I mean, I have to be at the top of my game all the time with her. And so it, it definitely helps put things into perspective. Cellist Elisa Weilerstein talking about her new recording of Beethoven cello sonatas with pianist Enon Barnaton. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Mm-hmm.